Welcome to Startup to Scale, a podcast by Food Bevy. I'm your host, Jordan Buckner. Join me as I talk to aspiring entrepreneurs, seasoned industry experts, and everyone in between as we unlock the keys to growing from startup to scale. Hey everyone, Jordan here with the Startup to Scale podcast and excited for today's guest, David Howitt, who is the founder of Meriwether Group. David was a previous entrepreneur in, in the food and beverage industry himself, has worked in uh, kind of corporate American retail for a bit and now helps uh, founders and emerging brands really grow their, their businesses in line with what we talk about from start to scale. So David, welcome. Thanks for having me, Jordan. Appreciate it. So I know there's a couple of things we want to talk about um, during this episode. Uh, one in particular that I'm really curious about is as brands are navigating changing consumer behaviors right now, you know, we're kind of coming out of this interesting time of, of post-ish pandemic, uh, inflation, uncertainty around the world, consumer habits are, are changing. And so uh, what are consumers looking for these days and what qualities are you seeing really stand out? I really appreciate that question, Jordan. And I, and I think it's in some ways the question for emerging consumer brands, food and beverage and otherwise. You really have to deeply understand who your core consumer or consumers are and ensure that your product, your messaging and your distribution align with those core consumers and what we're finding at the Meriwether Group is that um, the consumer these days is interested in participating with a brand, not just buying more stuff. So the age and time of beating the consumer over the head with product messaging to get them to buy your stuff feels like it's no longer working. And so it's more a subtle invitation to come understand the brand, what the brand speaks to, and how the consumer could then participate in that brand promise through buying your product. And in that, we see other important factors such as um, brands that are authentic. And really, we feel that that authenticity is driven by the founder. It's really the imprint of that founder's DNA into the business and the brand such that every touch point with the consumer is largely impacted by that authentic founder purpose. The consumer seems to be able to sort of sniff that out more now than ever. And it's good uh, for, your, for your listeners who are building authentic experiential brands. It's a way for them to take market share from very large corporations who have a ton more money, a ton more distribution, but frankly can't R&D authenticity in a lab. Now, David, let's break that down a little bit because, you know, the word authentic has been coming up more and more. And I think that some of its meaning has gotten lost as some of the larger brands start to use the word authentic as well. So um, as you're coaching and talking with founders, like what does it mean to actually be authentic these days? Yeah, I think it starts with that founder and really that founder's reason or purpose for having birthed the business. Um, Certainly there are businesses out there that are successful that are birthed by founders who, you know, learned about an opportunity in their MBA class and built a financial model and said, oh gosh, there's an opportunity to make money. 
But those are not the types of businesses that Meriwether Group tends to focus on. And frankly, you know, we don't see them as authentic. Um, what we mean is that founder who just literally has this internal need to birth this new product because they are relentlessly focused on creating disruption in the market and either birthing a new category where one has never existed or creating evolution or revolution in a tired and stale category. And I'll give you some examples because I think those words are hard to, to, to really fully grasp without, you know, without providing an actual real world example. So in my own um, case, um, Heather, my partner who I launched Oregon Chai with, she had this just internal undying need to bring Chai from India and Nepal and other uh, Southeastern countries to the US. It was the early 90s. Starbucks was starting to change the way the consumer approached coffee in North America, but tea was very much still just a mug of hot water and a bag of whatever. And it was particularly boring, not aspirational, and couldn't stand up to a caramel frappuccino mocha latte. So, you know, we, we, we traveled in Southeast Asia, came back, and Heather, you know, did the work around the product, the brand experience, what she wanted the consumer to feel, and we launched that business. And we grew it from our stovetop to a business that we exited for almost $100 million. And I can say that while there was a ton of hard work and a lot of great fortune and good folks along for the ride, really what allowed that to happen was Heather's authentic desire to create this category and to do it through the lens of delivering to the consumer something really amazing. The other one I'll mention is a company called Dave's Killer Breads. So I met Dave Dahl, the founder at the Portland State University Farmer's Market, and he was selling bread from a stand. He had spent- early, early days. <laughs> yeah, real early days. He spent 15 years in prison for a variety of matters. And he had kind of finally gotten the help he needed and the treatment he needed, and he birthed this new company. And there were lines at the farmer's market to buy his bread. And that company will this year do over a billion in revenue. And, you know, again, it's bread, right? And so can someone go knock off that bread and put a bunch of seeds on it? Yeah. But why do people choose to buy Dave's? Because they feel the intentionality and the truth and the heart of Dave Dahl and his authentic story in the product and the messaging. And that's what wins. I love that. And, and those are two really great examples. I think they're very pertinent. Here's something that I hear from founders all the time. And I experience myself is when you're creating a brand, how much of yourself do you put as the founder front and center versus how much do you build a, a brand outside of yourself? Because a lot of founders I talk to, especially in the last 10 years, tend to have this idea that they're going to build a brand. It's going to grow to $50 million in five years, and then they'll sell it. If them as the founders to, are too um, front and center with the brand, then it'll be hard to detach themselves from the company. Have you mm. experienced that? And, and Yeah, I understand the question uh, very well. And I guess my position on that is the founder needs to be front and center. We sold Oregon Chai 18 years ago, and it still says on the packaging, our founder was trekking in the Himalayas when she came upon a, a monk drinking chai tea. Um, really, ultimately, that's what you are selling. You are selling your brand, right? I mean, chai is water and spices and honey and tea. 
So without the founder story being front and center, without that um, truth, that authenticity, the heritage, you're selling water and spices and honey and tea. And I don't think you have to worry about the downstream buyer and whether or not you know, they're going to be concerned that the founder won't come along with the deal because the founder's imprint in the company comes along with the deal. I mean, Phil Knight has not worked at Nike in 20 years and he's not even been on the board for 10 years. And everything that company does is still intimately connected to Phil Knight's legacy and his vision. And so if, if I were advising your listeners, I would say, be inclusive of the founder story because that is your point of difference in a world where you can't keep up with the big folks on marketing and distribution. Yeah. They can, they can replicate most other things, but they can't replicate you. <laughs> yeah. And I say it all the time. You can't R and D a founder story in a lab. The consumer will sniff it out. So I totally agree that consumers are interested in participating in, in brands a lot more these days. Um, and then there's a particular, there's a couple of brands I see doing it really well, like uh, Midday Squares in the, in the chocolate and confectionery space and a couple of others. Um, what are some of those key points that are enabling um, founders and brands to kind of welcome in consumers so that they can participate? Yeah. So um, I think there are several touch points where a consumer can sort of feel like they're they're able to participate, they're able to experience the brand, um, and they can do it in an aspirational way. More and more brands are having to be omni-channel. So at least some component of their distribution is going to be direct to consumer. That element you know, leads to a great opportunity to know your consumer, to invite them in, sweepstakes, challenges, help us name a, a new product, a secret menu that you can unlock with the app. All of these types of things are ways to sort of authentically allow your consumer in and to feel like they're part of you. Um, and to do it again, though, in a non-cheesy, real way. And, you know, your brand is a promise kept. That's what we think of as a brand. And so everything you do to invite the consumer in has to be held by that promise and aligned with that promise. Um, we've seen some brands do things like, hey, we give X percent back. You can go on our website and vote for which organizations should receive that. And you know, these are all ways to sort of bring people in to be more of a participant than just a consumer. Do you believe that um, as a founder of a brand that getting started, founders, are able to, um, to build their own community of, 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 of buyers and kind of attract people to them? Or is it more founders are successful when they go out and find an existing community and solve a problem for them, kind of with them in mind? Great question. So we define disruption as either creating a new category where one has not existed, and that was the case with chai. Um, it would be the case with, let's say, hemp foods, um, or looking at categories that are tired and stale and are in need of evolution or revolution, like the bread category, pun intended, was stale, and here comes Dave's. So honestly, I think the answer is both, right? There are those entrepreneurs that will truly see um, a space in the market where there needs to be a new category, where, where literally nothing has been before, but the consumer is ready for it and it's time and you birth it. 
that's harder and we think rare, but it happens. The other is to look at categories that are tired and stale. So if you look at, as an example, getting your hair cut, historically, your choices were go to your mom's salon, that place where, you know, those domes go over people's heads and they have curlers on, or go to your dad's barber shop where there's like combs in that weird blue liquid and old Playboys in the waiting room. And that didn't provide a, a good choice for a large amount of consumers. So we've seen disruption. Initially, supercuts came in and created kind of chains and, and that addressed some consumers' needs, but there was others that were you know, not going to suburban strip malls. So you've seen the rise of these kind of boutique hipster barbershops all around the country. And you know, that's an answer to a large consumer group who just didn't have a relevant choice to get their haircut. Um, something as mundane as haircuts has spawned significant growth and successful entrepreneurs. And you can kind of go through the map. Um, a, a mentor of mine uh, said to me once, the best major to study in college if you want to be a great private equity investor is history. And I thought, that's really strange. Um, and he said, well, it's about pattern recognition. And a lot of innovation and launching of consumer brands, food, beverage, and otherwise, is looking historically and recognizing patterns in the market where a, a, a company and or product or category is born. It's initially very disruptive. It's initially very innovative. And then almost always they start to flatten out and they can become mundane. And then that's the opportunity if you're a capitalist to come in and change the game. Um, Campbell's soup. I've been eating Campbell's soup since I was a little kid. And if you walk down the aisle, it has not changed one iota since that day. So is there an opportunity for someone to come along with a more relevant modern day soup? I absolutely believe so. It's a multi-billion dollar category. Um, so this is, this is kind of what I mean by pattern recognition, history, and disruption and innovation. You know, one thing that I see a lot of brands doing right now is what I call getting too clever. And I was guilty of this myself when I created my brand T-Squares. It was a tea-infused energy bar with flavors like citrus, green tea, matcha. And that was our, our product scripture, tea-infused energy bar. Mm -hmm. And now in hindsight, I thought about it and said, I've never even gone into the grocery store looking for a tea-infused energy bar. Like, how is someone else going to do it? And I created the product. And so... Um, I see a lot of young brands actually doing this where they're too clever. And I say that, that they're using, um, they're creating solutions in areas where I'm not sure that there's a problem or not. Absolutely. And it's costing them a, a lot of money and time to figure that out. That's, a, that's an incredible statement and great self-awareness. And I've certainly been there too. Um, my grandfather told me once, genius is nothing more than knowing what the consumer wants 30 minutes before she knows she wants it. But it's not genius to know three days or three months or three years before she wants it because you have to have a war chest of money to stick around, right? So you can actually be too early and you can also sometimes get too clever. Um, the other thing I'll say, and you know, I don't mean this in a um, pejorative or negative way, but you know, we give consumers too much credit. Um, they're... They're, they're messaged to all the time. They're bombarded with information and they have a lot of choices. And so if we assume they're going to take the time to dig in and understand 
why a tea infused energy bar is needed or better, we, we probably are over, uh, overly sort of giving them too much credit, right? And so when people as a human nature, as human nature, when people feel dumb, they don't have purchase intent. So if the product takes more than three seconds to explain, um, you're likely not gonna scale. So Dave's Killer Breads, great organic sustainable bread you know yes <laughs> tastes great and it's good for you you know and either you like seasoning your bread or you don't but you get or it. you like it or you don't right and um but we've had several companies with Meriwether group that you know it was just too much of a heavy lift either the packaging or the product or the formulation or the brand promise you just couldn't it, it can't be quickly and efficiently shared with the consumer um, and, and unless, again, unless you have a war chest of money, it's just not going to work. I, I totally agree. And I feel like that's what's happening to a lot of brands now. So as I talk to founders, they, you know, uh, fundraising is a big issue and money's kind of drying up from a lot of investors, especially for these early stage companies that haven't reached product market fit. Um, how would you advise companies to navigate this, this time, this funding crunch? Yeah. Yeah. Great way to lead into that question. I and mean, we'll start with the perspective of, um, you have to have a relevant product, a relevant brand. The promise has to matter. You have to have identified white space in the market where the consumer has been deprived. Does the consumer need another third wave coffee bean? I don't think so. I don't think people need to hear about, well, our sourcing is a little bit better than their sourcing, or we roast it a tiny bit different than they roast it. So before you start going and fundraising, you have to know if in fact the product is um, filling a need in the market where the consumer has been deprived of innovation. Secondly, what I would say is be prepared to bootstrap and to bootstrap for longer than you ever anticipated. Um, the earlier you go to seek capital, the harder it is and the more equity you're gonna have to give up to bring it in. And then you're gonna have a complex cap table with all sorts of shareholders who have different beliefs and thoughts about what their return on investment should be. So bootstrap, you know, do things on the cheap, work hard, work a separate job, be prepared to, you know, put those hours in to get to a place where you've proven the concept at market, the consumer has voted yes, and now you just need to pour gas on it. Keep your burn rate down. So, you know, don't start to incur large expenses with a fancy office. Um, try to hire people that'll come in on the cheap and for equity. And when you finally are ready for capital, um, you know, what I would say is consumer brands have three ways they can scale growth. Cash flow, loans slash debt, or selling ownership. Find the right balance between those three things. There are now some banking lending vehicles that are more available than they have been historically. A lot of founders don't know that. They don't think about that. Um, but you can borrow money in many cases. Uh, SBA loans, the 7A SBA loans, we, we've been working with brands and providing them with access to a lot of that through our partnership with First Fed. Private lending, we have a fund, our hero fund, that is our own fund of dollars. Uh, and we lend that out in a more flexible way. That allows entrepreneurs to preserve their ownership before they go and start trying to bring in equity. And then I guess my last piece of advice would be, be careful of spending too much time in the fundraise mode and chasing every you know, cat that you're trying to herd 
and taking your eye off the ball on running the day-to-day business. Um, and make sure that whatever capital you bring in, you bring in on the right terms. Just getting a real high valuation doesn't necessarily mean you've done a good job. If you can't back up that valuation down the road and, and you know grow the company to a point where you either don't need capital or your next capital raise is at a higher valuation, you're going to probably do yourself more injury than you are benefit. I love all of those. I remember one of the smartest things a mentor um, explained to me is that raising or funding a business wasn't either or, like either from cash flow or from investment or debt. You can do it through a mix of all of those um, those methods and you yes. should be. And each capital is better utilized for different parts of the business. So think about it as a capital stack instead of um, just one or nothing. Really well said. And that's entirely true. And and folks should should access advisors you know, in this process, um, it may cost you a little bit of the money and, you know, to have an advisor help you through your putting your capital stack together, but it will be worth it in spades over time, um, to ensure that you, you did that and built your cap table the right way from the earliest days. I love that. David, this has been such a great conversation time's flown by. Thanks so much for being on today. Thank you for having me. And thanks to your listeners. I'll put more information in the show notes on how to get in touch with, with David and um, the Marilla group. And so keep an eye out for that. Thank, thank you so much, Jordan. Really appreciate you.